I will be reading from Genesis chapter 3, if you want to follow along in the Pew Bibles, um, it's towards the beginning, or you can just listen along. The saddest chapter, I think, in all of Scripture, but he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, 
because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The, man's, the man called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, we are beginning today a three-part Christmas series entitled The Promised One. Uh, In this message, we're going to focus on our need for the promised one. And then next week, Alex is going to preach a message on the identity of the promised one, and then in the third message, the Sunday before Christmas, we will focus on the coming of this promised one and what he has done for us. We need to begin with the need for this promised one. And as we begin, it may help uh, to suggest to you that when we come to the Bible, when we come to God's Word, we are really coming to a historical story. We, we're not coming to a collection, collection of sayings or musings or random events, but a historical story that is told by God from the start all the way to the end, a complete whole, one singular story from start to finish. If you, if you were to think of the Bible as a play, the historical storyline of the Bible actually plays out in five different acts. Act 1 is creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Act 2 is the fall of man into sin, that's Genesis 3. And then Act 3 begins in the middle of Genesis 3, promise. From Genesis 3 and verse 15, all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, all the way through the life of John the Baptist, until John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From Genesis 3, 15, all the way to that point is promise. Everything you find in the Old Testament, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the ram that God provided in place of uh, Isaac or Abraham's son, 
the prophets, the Psalms, all of them foreshadow in either prediction or symbol or ceremony the promised one, the promised deliverer. So act one, creation. Act two, the fall. Act three, promise. Act four, fulfillment. Jesus comes. And then act five, consummation where the crucified and risen and reigning and returning king comes and consummates all things, recreates all things, and the new heavens and the new earth begin and we go back to Eden. Only better. We go back to Eden and only better. That is the storyline of the Bible. We're going to unpack it a little bit over these next few weeks. And if I were to try to summarize these three messages, I, I might put it like this. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the promised one. The answer to all of our longings. The fulfillment of all God's promises. And the path that leads us all, all the way home. Jesus is the promised one. He is the answer to all of our longings. He is the fulfillment of all God's promises. He is the path that leads us all, all the way home. And let's, let's take a look at the Scriptures together. Let's start at the beginning, Act 1, creation. Genesis 1 and verse 1. Keep your Bibles open or whatever it is you're using to read the Scriptures here today. Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The whole storyline of the Bible begins. This is no once upon a time. Now this is in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When the beginning began, God already was. He is the eternal one. He is the everlasting one. He is the self-existent one. He is the one who existed before everything else exists. In the beginning, God. And this God, we find out in verse 26 of Genesis 1, is not only one God, but He exists in plurality. If you've ever noticed uh, Genesis 1 and verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image. So this one God exists in some kind of us-ness, if you will. This one God, we find out later on as the Scriptures unfold, exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This, this verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, reminds us of another verse in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God, and He was God. He was in the beginning with God. And this Word, John 1.14, became flesh and dwelt among us. So this Word, this Son of God, who was with God and was God, has now become flesh. The whole Christian perspective, the whole Christian worldview, our whole view of the cosmos and, and everything is that is begins right here. There is a creator God. There is a one God who exists 
in three persons who in ancient days, nobody knows when, he broke the silence of eternity and he said, let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was. And I, I want to say to you right here, if, if you're a person who uh, thinks of religion and thinks of Christianity, and when you think of Christianity, you yawn as if it's boring, you don't understand Christianity. Because the Christian faith begins with a reality that is anything but boring. It is absolutely stunning. It is, a, it is a truth that can capture your mind and your heart and your spirit forever. There is this being who just exists. And we have come into existence by His power. And for His glory, for our everlasting joy. This is nothing to yawn over. If, if you're dozing off right now, you're not paying attention. This, this, is, this is truth to make you sore. This is truth if, if you're a person who is getting tired of this world. The world just keeps churning out stick figure drawings and you're, you're aching for a Rembrandt. You're, you're looking for something exalted. The, the world keeps turning on out pop songs, but your heart, your spirit wants to sing something transcendent, something magnificent, something marvelous. You've come to realize that nothing here below can fill the aching void of your soul. If you are one who senses deep within your spirit, there must have been a before and a beginning, and there must be an after. And God is the one who fills it all. If, if you're the one who's looking for that kind of transcendence, you need go no further than God. You need go no further than Genesis 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God. I'm here to tell you that if there is no God at the beginning, then there is no meaning at the end. If there is no God who is, and always has been, and always will be, then there is no significance to your life or mine. We are just passing shadows, and we're going to sooner or later be buried in the sod and fertilize the flowers, and that'll be about it. But in the beginning, God. Now it gets better. There's really good news here. God, when he spoke the universe into existence, spoke us into existence. And we read, don't we, in verse 27 of chapter 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So God has spoken the universe into existence and he makes the various things on the first five days and then on the sixth day he pauses and he creates us. He creates man, male and female and he makes us in his image. The Hebrew word that is used there speaks of a shadowy resemblance or a likeness, that which represents 
another. Human beings were created so that God could cast His shadow onto the earth. There are currently 7.7 billion God shadows on the earth. 7.7 image, billion image bearers of God. Nobody knows how many have lived in the history of the world. Tens and tens of billions of image bearers. What does it suggest to us? That God in making us in order to even begin to adequately communicate His own glory, His own beauty, His own majesty, has had to make tens of billions of little images which if you put them all together in some kind of composite whole, you might begin to get a glimpse of who God is. He made us in His image. God, it's as if God put a tag on us when He made us. Genuine image of God. Made and inspected and approved by the living God. You remember what God does after He's done making man, after He's done making male and female. He has said after the first few days of creation at each stage, He looks at His creation and He says, Behold, it was good. It was good. Birds, they're good. The seas, they're good. The fish, they're good. The beasts of the field, they're good. The vegetation, that's good. The mountains, those are good. And then God made us. And what did He say? It is very good. It is very good. It's as if God looked on man and said, I don't want to be flippant, but like, wow. 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 My friends here this afternoon, this is the biblical foundational understanding of what it means to be human. Before we became sinners, we were glorious image bearers of God. We were made to reflect His image. We were made for majesty. We were made for wonder. We were made for splendor. We were made, we were made to manifest God's glory here on earth. This dignity that we have includes a capacity for things beautiful and things wonderful and things good and things noble so that even in our fallen condition, even though we are sinners now, it still shines through so you have somebody who can sing like an angel. Or you have somebody else who... I, I read uh, a week or two ago about a, a, a woman uh, who can take two 13-digit numbers and multiply them in her head. 13 digits, by the way, is into the trillions. She can multiply them in her head and have the answer out within 30 seconds. 
So she can take the number 6,420,587,320,948 times 4,783,260,719,368 and she can, if she was handed those numbers at the same time as I started reading those numbers, she would have already had the answer. And you can give her any two 13-digit numbers. Or you've heard perhaps about people who are able to remember every single thing that they've ever experienced in their life. Everything, everything, every detail, right down to the clothes they wore 42 years ago on Thursday morning at work. Or maybe you've heard about Mozart, who as a four-year-old could play complex musical pieces from memory and do it faultlessly. There was this young child, three-year-old Adam, who could read and write and speak several languages and compose music. Or the ten-year-old Jay, who received a full scholarship to Juilliard when he was ten, and by the time he was twelve, he composed five full-length symphonies. And he said at one time, music just fills my head and I have to write it down to get it out. He often hears more than one composition going on in his head at the same time. What are we to think about people like this? I think God allows us in seeing prodigies and geniuses and people of art and all the rest, God allows us an opportunity to see what we were made to be. The majesty and the wonder of hum human beings. But there's bad news. And the news is terrible. Genesis chapter 3, Act 2, the fall. There's good news made in the image of God. Then there's bad news. We were made for Genesis 1 and 2. But then Genesis 3 happens. We were made to walk in the garden with God. But instead we wander in the wilderness of our sin. We were made for splendor and might and beauty. But instead we, we live with slithering snakes and piercing thorns and bothersome thistles and... I would include mushrooms. The fall has been great. Devastating. Devastating. This fall, according to Genesis 3, has ruined our relationship with God. Notice verse 10. Adam says to God, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Prior to Genesis 3, Adam was not afraid of God. He delighted in God and anticipated every glimpse of God. Sin entered. Suddenly he's afraid. Verses 23 and 24. 
Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve now, instead of being in the garden, in fellowship with God, are now banished from the garden, excluded from the presence of God. This is spiritual death. This is, this is death of every sort. The, the day they ate, they died. They died spiritually. They died in many ways physically. It ruined their relationship with God. Sin kills our relationship with Jesus. Kin, sin kills our relationship with God. Always has, always will. It ruined relationship with God. It ruined relationship with our own selves. It introduced into our own psyche, into our own emotional experience, things that just weren't there before. Before sin happened, there was peace and joy. There was no shame. Adam and Eve could look at each other, both being naked and not be ashamed because they weren't thinking any shameful thoughts. They weren't doing any shameful things. So they had no reason to be filled with shame. But then in Genesis 3 and verse 7, when they ate, their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed coverings. They felt shame. And because they were naked, verse 10, Adam says he was afraid of God. Sin coming into our condition has now imposed guilt and fear and shame into our consciences so that not a day goes by when there isn't at least a moment when we feel ashamed. This is the fall, the devastating effects of the fall. Sin has ruined our relationship with God, ruined our relationship with self, it's ruined our relationship with each other. Look at verse 12. As soon, as soon as sin enters into the world, gender warfare begins. It starts. The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. Doesn't that sound familiar? It's been going on ever since. Man and woman fighting with each other. Down in verse 16, God says to Eve, your desire... The idea there is your ambition shall be for or to, to, to rule over your husband, but he shall rule over you. Before the fall, man and woman, male and female, lived together in perfect harmony and bliss and total complementary love and relationship. Sin enters into the world and there's immediate warfare. There's immediate conflict within the family. This this marriage conflict in chapter 4 turns into sibling conflict as Cain kills Abel. And then you go a little further into chapter 6 and God looks out on the whole planet and He says, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. I'm going to send a flood. Here's why. The earth is filled with violence because of them. We go from majestic image bearers of God to brutal, violent creatures. That's the fall. And it's been going on ever since. It's, it's heart-wrenching. Dozens of wars going on in our world right now. Hundreds of 
conflicts in clans and tribal situations, marital conflict, parental conflict, at one point or another in every home. There is, we are determined to, by violence, by anger, by hostility, we're determined to expand our territory, to defend our interests, to pressure or preserve our power, to guard our boundaries and our borders, to oppress our neighbors. We're just determined to be on top, and we're going to get there no matter what it costs to you. This is the fall. The fall has ruined our relationship with God. It has ruined our relationship with self. It has ruined our relationship with others. And believe it or not, it has ruined our relationship with creation itself. We see this in verses 16 through 19, where to Eve, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Before Genesis 3, Childbearing was meant to be absolutely painless. No longer. He says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Because of sin and the curse of the fall, childbirth now is agonizing. Because of sin and the curse of the fall, work is now agonizing. Nothing comes easy anymore. Whether figuratively or literally, there are thorns and weeds and thistles. Every time you put your hand to do anything productive, nothing is easy because of the curse of the fall, death became inevitable. To dust we shall return. And so, God banished Adam and Eve from the garden. I can't help but imagine, envision Adam and Eve at the end of Genesis 3, standing outside the garden, looking back with the serpent slithering off somewhere into the dark, looking back and seeing the blazing angel there with the blazing sword there, and thinking in their minds, what have we done? Imagine them thinking, God's in there, and we're out here. That's paradise. This is wilderness. We walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. And now Adam looks at Eve and Eve looks at Adam and says, now I'm stuck with you. And this really was her fault. Or if he had only been a man and killed that snake before it got to us. Oh, how I hate snakes can imagine what was going on in their minds, in their hearts. And it only got worse 
by Genesis 6, it is so bad that God just says, I've got to wipe the planet clean, start over. But the whole situation from that point on was, humanly speaking, doomed because the poison of sin had gotten into their hearts and Satan had taken up residence in their hearts and Satan was the king in their hearts. And so long as that poison is there and as so long as Satan is there, uh, there's no hope. The good news made in the image of God, the bad news fell, 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 and in many ways still fallen. But there's good news after the bad news, after the good news. The good news after the bad news after the good news is in Genesis 3 and verse 15. The first Christmas text in the whole Bible. The first promise of a deliverer. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Typically in our culture we would reverse this so that the climax comes at the end. If I were writing this with my own cultural background I would say you shall bruise his heel but he will bruise your head. The word bruise actually means to crush. God says to Satan, you and your seed are going to go to war with me. You're going to go to war. You already have gone to war with me and the woman. And there's going to be conflict. And there's going to be enmity there. However, while you will crush the heel of the seed of the woman, He is going to rise up from that apparent defeat and He is going to crush your head. This is God declaring war, folks. The first Christmas text is a war text. This is God saying to Satan, you are doomed. This is God saying to Satan, you think you have the upper hand, but I'm telling you, The day is coming when the seed of the woman, when an offspring of a woman, when a a baby boy is going to enter this world. And and you're going to, yeah, you're going to have your moment. You're going to have your moment when you you bruise, you you crush his heel. You know, to, to have your heel crushed is pretty significant in a battle to have your Achilles tendon rupture, which is the essence of that. To have that happen in the midst of the battle, is, it sure looks like defeat. It sure looks like you're ruined because in order to fight in a battle, you've got to be on your feet. And if, you're, if you are crippled and you are, your tendon is ruptured, you're done. Or so it looks. But, God says, He is going to stand up, the seed of the woman. And with the very heel, with the very heel that you crushed, He's going to crush your head. Not your heel, but your head. 
He is going to utterly destroy you. There will be no coming back from what He does to you. It's going to be over when He's through doing what He comes to do. Sound familiar? Thousands of years later, in a little tiny spot in a little tiny town, there came forth in the fullness of time, we are told, someone who would be born of a woman and rise up as the perfect man, the second Adam, the one who would get it right this time because the first Adam messed it up. The second Adam is coming. And when he comes and takes on Satan, he's going to win. He's going to win. And I'm so tempted to keep going with this, but you're going to have to come back next week. And then the week after. As we allow this great redemptive story to unfold. Act 1. Creation. God made it all. And made you and me in His image. Act 2, the fall. Devastating fall. That ruined relationship with God. Ruined relationship with self. Ruined relationship with others. Ruined relationship with creation. Act 3, promise. The seed of the woman is going to come. He's going to win. Act 4, fulfillment. Act 5, he's going to come back again and make all things new. Where are you in all of this? Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? You need to understand there are sides. There are just two. There are just two. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. Whose side are you on? The Lord's side or the enemy's side? What would your life say in answer to that question? Not just your words, but what would your life say? What would your relationships say? What would your language say? What would your attitudes and heart say? Whose side are you on? Who was on the Lord's side was a question that was asked of the ancient people of God. And the same question could be asked today. The king has come. The seed of the woman has appeared. And through his death and resurrection, he has crushed Satan's head. Now the question is, whose side are you on? Because Satan still fights on even though he's lost. Whose side are you on? That's the question. We're getting ready in the next few minutes to enjoy, to witness together the baptism of two brothers in the Lord. By God's grace, by God's grace and regenerating powerful work in their lives, they have chosen to be on the Lord's side. And we get to celebrate that together in observing their baptism. And as, as you're observing, Take stock in your own heart, your own mind. This Christmas season, keep in mind that it's, it's not 
sentimentalism. It's, it's not gentle Jesus so much as it is triumphant Lord. Warrior Jesus, come to crush the enemy and set his people free. Whose side are we on? May it be that as we witness this baptism, we will, perhaps for the first time, decide for Jesus. Or for the hundredth time, may it be a renewal of our commitment to be on his side. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of this story of redemption. Not a once upon a time fairy tale, but a cosmic story, the history of the creation, the fall, the redemption of your people, of us. Lord, as somebody said earlier, we're, we're all part of the story. May we be on the right side in the story. And, and may we know in our own hearts that this deliverer who was promised and who has now come and who is coming again, that he is our deliverer, our Savior, that he is the one who has set us free from Satan's grip and control and Satan's kingdom. May we know whose side we're on because you've put us on the right side. Oh Lord, if there's anyone doubting, wondering, unsure, may today be the day when doubt is turned to faith, where sitting on the fence is put in the past and standing up and being counted as belonging to Christ happens. Oh Lord, may, may the promise be fulfilled personally in each one of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.